I often say to people, write down three things you really love and that you enjoy, and then three areas that you'd like to change in this world, maybe directly in your community and try and join the dots and keep looking at them until you do. Honestly, for me, this isn't random acts of kindness. Like, I don't believe it's random to be kind to someone. I believe it's like part of who we are. Welcome to the Seize the Yay podcast. Busy and happy are not the same thing. We too rarely question what makes the heart sing. We work, then we rest, but rarely we play and often don't realise there's more than one way. So this is a platform to hear and explore the stories of those who found lives they adore. The good, bad and ugly, the best and worst day will bear all the facets of seizing your yay. I'm Sarah Davidson, or Spoonful of Sarah, a lawyer turned fun entrepreneur who swapped the suits and heels to co-found Matcha Maiden and Matcha Milk Bar. Seize the Yay is a series of conversations on finding a life you love and exploring the self-doubt, challenge, joy and fulfilment along the way. It's so funny how the universe often throws you a quote or a message just when you need it most. I hear this so often with quote of the day and experience it all the time myself. And the same seems to happen with our wonderful guests. Victoria just extended its snap lockdown by another week today. So I was needing another little pep up. And while Hugh Van Kylenberg last week is a very hard act to follow, I think you'll find our guest today just as uplifting, inspiring and a truly special soul. You may have heard me speak about Joshua Coombs on Neighborhood Watch a few days ago, and I'm so thrilled to say not only has his book Do Something for Nothing launched in Australia just this week, he's also joined us on the show for today's episode. If you missed my intro on Monday, Joshua is a British hairdresser who took his skill onto the streets to give free haircuts to the homeless, and together with his passion and skill for storytelling, has created Created a global movement of kindness, connection, and humanity. His incredible book shares stories as well as before and after images of the people he's met from all over the world, including right here in Melbourne, showing the confidence, hope, and joy he brings them from just taking a moment to connect. For people who often feel invisible and misunderstood by society, Joshua is shining such an important light on homelessness and helping break down the stigma that it's still surrounded by. He's also encouraging us all to do something for nothing. For him, it's by giving out free haircuts, but he insists that we all have a skill or talent that we can share for free with others. I found him so fascinating and his stories even more captivating. You'll notice in this one, the audio changes about half way through when his airpods died with a bit of clicking just before that happens so please excuse the glitches but we still managed to have a pretty incredible conversation across the globe so i'm still pretty chuffed with that hope you guys enjoy joshua Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Sarah. I appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much for your time. I mentioned just before we started recording, I'm quite in awe of you. It's very hard to render me speechless, but um, reading your book for the second time today, I was not only speechless, but almost in tears. What an extraordinary journey you've been on. Yeah, you know, it's been, I guess, about five or six years since I first started going out and cutting hair for people on the street. But the process of the book itself has been a real journey. Um, I wrapped it all up just before lockdown and then had time to write it during lockdown. And I really hope that the stories in there of people that I've met in different cities like resonate and, and do justice to the people you know that you're, you're reading about. Oh my gosh, they absolutely do. You have brought so many beautiful personalities to life and stories with the photos. I can't wait to get into all of it and love that you've turned 
that very tough situation of being in lockdown into a, a beautiful output for us all to enjoy around the world. But before we kick off, I start every interview by asking everyone what the most down-to-earth thing is about them to break through the often glossy surface of our digital lives. And I mean, by nature of what you're doing, it's pretty down-to-earth endeavor. But for those of you who see you as an author and with a big platform, you know, what's something really normal about you that you do? Honestly, I think the best way to answer that is I can't do a week without two things, which are coffee and my guitar as well. And I think the other things that even though coffee obviously shoots me up to an elevated kind of what can sometimes be too much caffeine state, the guitar is what brings me brings me down to a level <laughs> that is my down to earth, that is my rooting, that is kind of my, um, yeah, it's just like my grounding when I need it. It's the way I meditate. So I think that even though I'm doing a lot most of the time and I'm quite a doer and I'm trying to broadcast messages, you will catch me for quite a few hours when I have them just still just playing guitar on my own. So that's kind of like, that's the bit where I switch off from everything. So that's the way I like to say that I'm most yeah, down to earth. Oh, I love that. And actually that leads really nicely into our first section, which is your way to yay, which really traces back through all the chapters before the one of your life where most of us will walk in on, which is obviously now where you have a very clear purpose and direction and message to bring to people. But I think it's easy to forget that most of us didn't start there. In fact, the first line of your book is that you didn't know what you wanted to be or where your skills were going to be, you know, best directed. So talk to us about young Joshua, what you were like as a kid. I know music and your guitar was probably your first love and first vocation. Yeah, tell us about young you. I think it was important to include in the book that, like, I, I left school feeling um, that it it was it was the end, not the beginning, and and that was based out of feeling kind of the over here in the UK, our GCSEs, like our school grades that you take when you're 16. It wasn't just the theoretical and like the paper side of things that I was like staring at, like those in the face. It was more like just a feeling, like a sense of from the adults around me and teachers and stuff. I was just like, oh, this you haven't done very well here and like there's not much beyond this for you to kind of like go and pursue and I grew up in the city Exeter in the southwest of England but really it was quite a small town when I grew up there and it's grown a lot since then and I had to find something I had to find something to kind of like get my teeth into and like feel like I was part of something and that was a guitar for me early on it was um my mom and my grandmother chipping in some money to like buy me this it was sort of like first grade guitar you get when you buy this little mini amp and you get this like electric it wasn't a fender it was called a square strat and it's like <laughs> i still remember it was it was like this first starter kit of like playing and it was just like everything i needed at the time because i just like could start playing a few chords and already i felt like ah, oh, this is a way of expressing myself that i didn't find in school and to be really honest like to talk about school for a second like a lot of it was my own problem and what i was trying to live up to because the way that i survived secondary school was by trying to be liked and like having some kind of bravado where I was like you know liked enough by the hard kids that I didn't get beaten up and sort of like friends enough with those guys over there so I could kind of get on with them and it was sort of I learned how to be a chameleon and I was very like I learned how to be funny to be honest humor was like probably the best the best course and the best medicine for me to get through those four years because it meant I survived socially but in doing that, it was it was looking back, it was very clear that that came at a cost, you know, like as far as like getting kicked out of lessons and classes and and, and obviously it was, you know, quite a it was very underfunded school I went to. It wasn't all that good, like it was a state school. So there was teachers who weren't getting paid enough. It was somewhere that hadn't had love that building for a while. So I sort of look back now and I think, yeah, well, many people did 
sort of finished school with the same feeling as I did. But I feel really, really lucky in the sense of having not only that guitar, but it was finding, a, a, you know, friends for you through music, which was a sort of punk music movement that happened, albeit sort of 25 years after it happened in the late 70s. But it was um, <laughs> a revival. It was, yeah, it was just something where like my, my auntie, she gave me her record collection, like her old punk vinyl collection. And she knew what she was doing now. I think back and I'm like, she knew exactly what she was doing, but it was my 16th birthday. And she was like, here's everything you need to know that you haven't got right now. Right. And it was like all these bands who were just, there was these messages with punk where it was an education too. It was like a political conversation, but also, just this like fierce kind of like, I don't know, this image also embodied just this ethos, which was togetherness. And I found people in the same town who were into the same thing. And yeah, we sort of got to know, I got to know people who I suppose became a friend for, for life. It's so interesting. I hear this more and more that maybe it's changing now, which I think is a really exciting, you know, direction shift in education. But there are so many people who come out of school feeling firstly like it's the end, not the beginning, but also that the schooling system, it, favours certain types of intellect and certain types of expression that then if you don't exhibit those exact traits often lead people to think that they're not very smart or that they don't have a way in the world for their exact talents to find a pathway where they're celebrated. And I love that the very last line of your book is that, you know, you're still that kid who was distracted and wanted to talk to the person next to you instead of being in classes, but that now that you know, tendency towards people and storytelling is your strength rather than something that back then you saw as a weakness. And I think something I love to emphasize on this show is that there aren't only two main forms of intellect or expression or career or success and that we're meant to find those gray areas in between and that sometimes that does take a, a music chapter and then a hairdressing chapter and, you know, identity unravels in, in parts. You don't necessarily, you know, you said early in the book as well that you didn't have a burning passion to become a hairdresser. That just happened to be the next chapter, which has then led to finding what you do now. So, I think, yeah, that was a wonderful insight on how music then kind of helped you refine your creativity and, and and your form of intellect. Definitely. And everyone's version of that is, is going to be different, isn't it? But I feel like some people they do have this immediate idea of like this vocation that they want to pursue. And I think that's really great when people are so driven, they have that kind of that from early on. But the best people I, I, I meet still like still working it out. And then I realized that, oh, yeah, you can keep on working out whatever that's going to look like on the outside. But I think there is something important to connect to underneath, which is like, what is it that really fills you up? Like, what is it that fills you up in a sense of like, for me, it's, it is people and it is stories, you know? And like, I'm really extrovert in that way. And I've, I've always been out there talking to people and, and getting to know people. And I know you can't just build a career around that as such, but it does give you some kind of indicators of like where it is you might want to go. You know, I always knew I wasn't going to be behind a desk. And, and I think that that's totally cool if, if that's your trip too. But I really hope that younger people, and when I do, I give talks in schools and I talk about my experiences and I'm like, well, yeah, I'm not saying follow what I did ever, but it's just, it's important to recognize that at 15 or 16 or 17 or 18, those kind of teenage formative years, like it's the beginning and like no one should make you feel like you're a failure in anything. Like you're not supposed to always know exactly what it is you're supposed to do that that age and I, and I think the best thing to do is is not put that pressure on people as long as that pressure isn't on people then I think we're good because as long as it's support and as long as it's love and if you're lucky enough to have that around you then hopefully it will work itself out but I do worry about the other side of it because I know people who felt the same as me and and you know that can go in some some difficult directions you know and people can rebel in, in different ways that 
hurt other people around them. And, you know, if you put that pressure on someone who hasn't got a support network at home, who, who hasn't got that love around them, who hasn't got a safety net, that can come out in all kinds of different ways. Yeah, for sure. And how lucky that you did have an aunt and a mum who knew that music would give you a really important vehicle to express yourself and find the next chapter. But given that you didn't actually have a burning passion to go into hairdressing, how did that become after doing gigs and tours and working in bars? Like, how did that become your next step? It was honestly, it was something that I sort of joke about with my friends now as well, because it had this stigma attached to it. Hairdressing, what we call in the UK, and you know, you're a hairstylist if it's in the US, but it's like, I didn't see the route in for me initially because I sort of saw it as something that used to be these little salons on the corner and not something that was like really creative and had all kinds of people like doing all kinds of things in this industry. So I think it has this perception from the outside from like people who just walk into a salon or a barbershop. And then when you get into the industry, you just see like, wow, you're just, your mind's blown by like everything that's going on and like how passionate people are. But yeah, for me, honestly, it wasn't that. It wasn't that that feeling of sort of falling in love with the industry and that side of cutting hair. It was, I knew, like I played guitar. I knew I could do that. And I thought like, these hands aren't very good at like putting up shelves and doing DIY. So I was like, what's the <laughs> kind of like, what's like the next thing that I can maybe do and get my hands into? And I feel almost like, bad and I'm offending people in that way and I was naive as I put in the book but I was like I thought how hard can this be I'll, I'll walk into a salon and ask if they need any help and I was like 24 25 at the time so it was a bit of a humbling process like I walk in <laughs> and and you know you usually train to, to be a hairdresser when you're like 16 and you start shampooing people at that age and I'm like I was doing this at, at in my mid-20s so to answer your question it was like it was a very humbling experience and it was something that came from music kind of not really happening anymore and a relationship in my life ended like that was quite kind of a, a long relationship and and those two things kind of it just felt like this I, a rebirth of sorts that I needed to get my head into something and it was that and I feel so thankful that uh, I got that opportunity because I worked for free for the first year still so basically I had to work jobs around that doing cafes and pubs and stuff like that just to sort of pay rent for that year and then after that I was sort of fast tracked to, to being a stylist straight away because I picked it up quite quickly but it was really humbling it was an amazing experience and I realized quite quickly how like obviously that role as a hairdresser of course you want to make someone look good on the outside but yeah very quickly I was like okay this is probably why I got into it because I'm talking to people each day people can confine in you you're of course busy and it's not always that easy sometimes you're back to back and and you're rushing through the day but I realized how important it is to, to be there for that person in front of you it's really interesting that I think it's actually even more fascinating that you didn't end up in it because you were so desperately passionate about that career yeah. Yeah. because it's again another really important reminder that inevitably the dots will connect even if you don't know it at the time and now looking at what you've done with that particular skill it makes absolute sense why that was what you gravitated towards and one of my best friends is a hairdresser actually owns a couple of salons he's incredibly successful and one of the things that happens to her often is this I think there still is a little bit of stigma that it's you know and a less educated job that you are just you know engaging in the superficial and making people look good for you know, an event or whatever, but really she's like, you are seeing people at their most vulnerable often, you know, you have cancer patients who need their heads shaved for the first time or you're being entrusted with, she's like, I could (laughs) ruin some people with the secrets that get told to me. Like that chair is (laughs) as valuable as a a therapist chair. (laughs) 
definitely honestly that's the, that's it like it really we've got this sneaky way of of getting in there and like just fishing for secrets and and, <laughs> and like you know I, honestly though just genuinely it's not that calculated but it is amazing that you're right that chair can provide that trust it can define it like so i i think what's interesting too as well you're right i mean there's so many different cases of people kind of a haircut can be like a new chapter in your life, you know, if like a relationship's ended and like you want to, or you want to start a new job or, you know, as you said on the flip side, it could be someone trusting you with something where they're in a really difficult position and, and they, they really want your advice and they want your knowledge on like how best to sort of make them feel better in those moments. So we all need, I think people outside of our circle to talk to. And that's the reason why people will go to a therapist because it's that objectivity, you know, and I think you have your support network within your friends and your family, hopefully. And, and beyond that, you do need people to be able to to sort of share with. And and I think that hairdressers is a way that I think, okay, it's not prescribed in the same way and it's not on paper. That's the, not the first reason you go. But as part of that process and as part of that experience, I've, I've seen that time and time again in the salon. And like I definitely now in the work that I do, I experience that on the street. And the reason for that, I believe, is also because when you're face-to-face with someone, that sometimes for me is... Like, all right, if you're getting to know someone new, that like, I'm quite good in those scenarios, but it took me a while to sort of grow into that. And for mm. some people, that's just not that easy, you know, to like be looking someone straight on eye contact. But for me, when I'm cutting out on the street, I'm usually, for most part, I'm behind someone or to the side and they're looking out at the world and looking out the street where they were before. And I think that is actually a really interesting part of it because it's not this really in- intense interaction. I feel people like relax into it. And I think that that's what's kind of, I've, I've been able to then have those conversations that are a bit more intimate and, and I never pry or push for like any particular bit of information. You just see what happens. You just have a chat like I would have done in the chair, in the salon. And sometimes mm-hmm. you get to know someone in a, in a deeper way. And sometimes it's just more surface level chit chat. I actually loved reading about that in every single story from the book that it all starts with a very casual conversation. It isn't kind of like, I'm going to cut your hair and change your life and give you confidence and (laughs) blah, 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 you know. (laughs) Like the scissors don't actually come out until Mm. you've really sat down and engaged with them as a person first, which I think is really beautiful. Talk us through that time in 2015 when it all started to change, your understanding of your role and what you could do with your skill. Was it because... You tried it first. I think you were walking to work or walking to a friend's house and you saw a guy on the street and how long had you been in the salon firstly? And then how did this do something for nothing movement develop? Oh, it was really interesting how it all began because I'd been working in a salon for probably only about three years at that time. So I was just getting to the stage where I was like, building a clientele, getting to know people who'd come back and see me a lot. Like, I guess it started to flourish like, why I'd got into this sort of become a hairdresser what I thought I was going to work in in a salon and keep doing this and maybe have my own salon one day and all those kinds of things like I've never done the five-year plan three year but I'm usually like about a few months ahead of myself most of the time <laughs> in my life and I think that that's like for the first time actually I started to feel in the salon I was like okay maybe this is like what I'm going to do I started thinking future tense but that all changed and it was I kind of like looked back and I feel like I knew it was going to because it was that side of of this that I've, I've spoken about it was that kind of like being there for the person in front of you that 
on one day, I had my backpack with me and I was on the way to another client's head. Basically, I was on the way to a client's house who I'd do the hair outside of work to get some extra pocket money. And I, I had my things with me in my backpack and I, I saw somebody who was on the street and I ended up giving them a haircut instead. And that was not something I actually really thought through all that much. And in fact, I'm really glad that I didn't have much time to sort of think about whether that's a good idea to ask somebody or whether it's something they'd really need. Because let's be honest, like if you haven't got somewhere to stay that night or you're not sure where you're getting your next meal from, it's like, here I am turning up with my scissors, like fancy a haircut. They say, you know, <laughs> I, I probably could have done some inner dialogue that would have, you know, maybe uh, told me that might not be the right thing to do. But instead I just, I was buying someone a coffee and I sat down with them and I just remember I had my, my all my stuff with me and I offered, this, this person a haircut and they said yes and that really was the beginning of all of this because without that first interaction I don't know what I'd be doing now I think I'd like to think it probably would have happened anyway but another time but from that it was the you know the beginning of a few months of going out and doing this more and more so I was immediately hit with this importance of not just the skill I had to go and give someone like a transformation and like make them you know kind of clean them up a bit and obviously like giving them the mirror at the end was this really beautiful moment of seeing somebody sort of, you know, recognize someone they hadn't seen for a while and, 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 and hopefully feel a little bit more confident and a bit more dignified. But honestly, straight away, it was the conversation. It was being able to sit down and listen and listen to someone's story. And it was that that I became really addicted to, um, to begin with. And I knew it was that side of it that I had this itch. Then I was just like, I've got to go out and keep doing this. And the stories I was hearing just dissolved like, all these myths that surrounded this word homeless that I feel like, you know, I had to work out what kind of over the years had been my own opinion about this issue and what had been just things that stuck to me from the information I was getting from different articles. And, you know, it was just within the first five people or 10 people I met, you know, I met someone who had their own business and, you know, had a family and ended up losing it all. I also met like on the other side of that coin, like someone who grew up in a really difficult neighborhood who didn't really have many chances and much of a support network. You know, there was younger people and older people. And I just thought like, this thing is just, you know, on the surface, it's, it, it sometimes has this kind of this look that, you know, we, we feel like it's just people making mistakes or choosing kind of like a certain path. And, and it just really is not like that. And, and, and even what it is, I was, I was thinking, you know, I, I've made mistakes in my own life and made bad choices, but like, thankful enough, like there's been people around me who've been able to support me in those moments. So yeah, from, from that first heck up, the story was like, I suppose for me, my, my own story changed, which was like the listening that I do in the salon and that kind of being there for someone. I learned how to do that. I think in a, in a different way on the street, I used to try and fill all the gaps in a conversation and be like, okay, this is how we interact. Um, my turn to talk, your turn to talk. I learned to like, get really quiet and be able to, when someone's talking, just stay quiet and listen to what else they have to say after the bit where you'd usually kick in and, and say something else. From those first few people, it turned into, as I said, 10, 20 people, and I'd go off on day, days off and, 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 and do this. And then I ended up leaving my job probably about three or four months after I started doing this. And, and that was on a whim, really, to be honest. Wow. Oh my gosh. I mean, I love that so much that you mentioned that it might not 
have actually happened if you'd had more time to think about it. And I think there are a couple of things that can kill really good ideas and one of them is overthinking and overplanning. Yeah, for sure. And the other one is the idea of, you know, it's important to have certainty and stability in, to an extent and to sort of plan for the future. But sometimes if your plans are too rigidly set in stone, you preclude the possibility of something better turning up, like this idea that you could just roll with and just see what happened. And who knew that four months later you'd have left your job to actually do this full time. But how extraordinary that it, it grew so quickly into something that consumed you. Yeah, I think I think it's a really, really good point you're making because you're right, the thinking about stuff. I think so many, you're right, so many good, good ideas. I think we have them and then we have this internal dialogue that is sometimes not all that useful. And, and I know that we need to like, yeah, we need to weigh things up in our mind, in our life and work out the do's and don'ts and, and, and try and make a measured decision based on those. But some of these things, and I talk about this a lot, is, you know, especially when, when people ask me questions saying, you know, how best is it to go out and interact with someone who's experiencing homelessness and how, how do you approach somebody and like the sort of guide to as far as like how you'd have one of these kinds of interactions. And, and often I say, well, I can answer those questions or I can respond to them, but just to let you know, like this area that we're talking about and these kind of questions, no point in fingers, but it's usually the biggest part of the problem, which is thinking there's all these questions that you need to answer and, and all the how to work. You just go up and say, hello, and how are you? And I think the more I do this, the more I realize that I still have those moments and it's so normal to have them to think, you know, it's not that easy sometimes to like approach a complete stranger. I'm, I'm so, like, I'm talking from a side of, rewinding and thinking about what this was like for me before and having empathy for that. It's, it's not that easy. Like sometimes you need to get outside of your comfort zone, especially in the scenario that I'm talking about where you're talking people who are often in a very difficult position, sometimes suffering a lot with different issues. So I'm not going to sit here for a second and say, get out there and do it. It's really easy. But I'd like to say, play out the worst case scenario. And I do that for myself sometimes when I sometimes feel a little bit nervy about talking to somebody new and it's like, you know, it's the middle of the day usually, it's a busy street, there's somebody sat there by a cash point, a supermarket, a bus stop, in a doorway, they're not looking too good, or, or maybe they are and they're smiling, so, so that makes it easy, but even if the energy is not so good, it's like, if I go up and I say, hey, how are you doing, what's like, you know, just draw their attention, smile, I'm either going to be met with a uh, smile back, a uh, kind of like warm interaction, or maybe one that's a bit cagey. And then I think it's important just to read that energy. And, and oftentimes I'll, I'll always just say to people, can I, hey, can I sit and chat with you for a while? And then if someone doesn't want to do that, if they're not feeling right, the worst case scenario is that they tell you to go away and they might do it in some slightly aggressive way. They might not be having a good day. But in all the years I've been doing this, like I've never had anyone become violent towards me i've never had anyone lash out at me it's just about what do i do with that moment if someone doesn't want to talk to me and they're not feeling good and they're having a bad day which by the way i often have those days before <laughs> coffee in the morning where i don't want to talk to anyone you know or we wonder what it's like to have those days where like you know what today talking to nobody would be amazing like and i think i just recognize that to allow for someone else's bad day is to allow for my own and the end then it's really important just to say like what do i do with that am i going to take that experience and walk off and say oh, I'm really hurt by that. And like, I'm not going to approach somebody in that way again and, and let that be the lesson or just think, okay, cool. Like that experience exists where it did. I'm going to leave it there and I'm going to walk on and, and, and the next person I see is a brand new interaction. I love that. And I think something that uh, I think it was Nathan pointed out that's really important in 
all human interactions, I think there are so many lessons about humanity generally is that I think sometimes you want to offer sympathy, whereas really someone just wants empathy. And because sympathy can become, I mean, there is a very fine line, they're very kind of conflated concepts sometimes, but sympathy puts distance between you and someone. It's like I'm the helper and you're the vulnerable, but empathy is like we're actually just all people and I'm just trying to sit down and have a chat. If you're having a shit day, I'll leave you alone. I'll move on to someone else. And I loved that distinction because I think homeless people would often get sympathy when that's actually not a helpful necessarily emotion. I'm so glad you mentioned that, Sarah. It's so important because like that specific interaction, Nathan, who I met in Brisbane, it was like that in a nutshell is such a great lesson. Is like sympathy, honestly, a lot of the time is actually a really useless emotion or like a useless kind of, and I don't mean that in a bad way. It's okay to feel, oh yeah, they're having a really bad time. Like I do feel for them right now, but if you're on the receiving end of that, there's not much you can do with that. I put myself in that scenario a lot of like, what would be like for me if I was, living outside and most of the interactions I had were ones where I had to go and like ask someone for something, whether that be like a shelter or a food bank or, you know, someone from the street, like whether they've got some change. And I think after quite a few of those interactions, I probably would feel like it's not a very dignified process. And the last thing I'd want is, is sympathy on top of that to feel like I'm not a human being. It's like, I'm just in a difficult position and this is where I'm at right now. But as Nathan said, sympathy is kind of useless to him. It's like trying like, build a bridge of empathy. And I really think that that just starts with like those first blocks. It's like, okay, you might not be able to imagine completely like all the nuances of someone's life and what they're going through right now, but you can sit on that a little bit and you can kind of get there. You know, I think it's, it's another thing where there's these platitudes we say to people. And I think it happens a lot through grief and, and loss as well, where people say, I can't imagine what that would be like. I oh got, I can't imagine what you're going through. And I, I think you can, like, I think you can actually, like, <laughs> you can try. I you, yeah, I think you can. I think you can work out what it's like to sit down and it's not easy and it's not nice, but to think about losing a loved one or a, or a friend or someone who's really dear to you, you probably can imagine what it's like not to have them in your life anymore. But it's saying you can't imagine or saying kind of, you know, putting someone on that island then where they're kind of, they're further away from you, it isolates somebody. So I think it's better to start on that route and, and that direction even if you're like hands up I don't know all of it but that's an important road to take rather than pity and sympathy so I think it's a really interesting point to raise. I also loved I think one of the really powerful reflections from you towards the end as well after having done a tour of you know multiple different countries with your scissors and and meeting so many different people was that homelessness is, you know, the, the greatest, most obvious challenges are surviving on the street and warmth and food, but actually those basic survival instincts are not as difficult as the social isolation psychologically that people face. Like I think that's so sad that there are huge populations of people that are, you know, considered invisible that either get only pity and sympathy or I just treat it as if they're not there and the simplest gesture even if it's not necessarily creating a full movement called do something for nothing and, and writing a book even just a smile I think you wrote wrote quite a few pages about the impact of giving someone a smile and what's the worst that can happen they don't smile back I mean no one's died of that so <laughs> yes exactly right you, you know it's, it's 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 sometimes putting it in those simplest of terms to feel like you know, really, come on, what is what is that going to cost you? It's free, we've all got it. And I think what you're saying is, is really, it's the crux of, of everything the book's about and everything that I try and embody, like the ethos would do something for nothing is, honestly, for the record, like 
you smiling at someone is as important as me writing this whole book and, and doing this. What I'm trying to say is like, this is just my version of it, but this is something that has existed. It's an inherent part of being a human. It's, it's like, you need those social interactions. We are hardwired for the stuff. We wouldn't have survived without sharing, you know? Of course, we've always had conflict. We've always had struggle, but in times of crisis, like we've had to share and we've had to come together. And from smaller tribes many years ago to where we are now, with so much comfort and so many people with the affluence and comfort who are without and who are suffering. But you're right. I think, of course, there's that material side. And I do have the political conversation too, where of course we need more affordable house. And of course we need systemic change. You know, like the way that we kind of run our cities to like leave so many people falling through the cracks, but that social isolation at the sharp end, when you are already isolated and when you are already out there and you're living on the street, it's like those things are, a huge, they're fundamental parts of what we all need. So for them to be discounted, it's just like, they can be everything to someone. I've met people with, I've heard stories of people who are like, you know, ready to end it all and someone bothering to have that conversation and, and bothering to smile with them. Like it can be the difference. It's not a complete solution. It's not a complete answer. I know sometimes that some, the way that people work is, is very, methodical and they want to think about kind of like seeing clear tangible results for the work they do in this world and like like i want change like i want change to happen i want to see these numbers reduce i want to see the number of people dying on the street each year like reduce in the time that i'm here on this earth trying to get more people inside and and and, and, and kind of looked after but in the meantime i'm like what can i do today like what are the things i can do today because i can certainly walk out into this world and be like you know when i'm able like spend a bit more time with people, be more aware of one another. As you said, like those simple things, that smile, that how are you? That's like the value of that for me is just, it's so huge. And I see it played out in the work I do all the time. That also makes me think about how dramatically your relationship to concepts like success must, you know, have changed over this whole journey and the meaning of impact. And you mentioned the word value. Like I think one of the stories that resonated very, very strongly with me from the book was the family who's living on Skid Row in LA and how even headed they sounded about wealth being like just so far from the be all and end all of happiness and fulfillment and, and how joyful they were that, you know, the positives they could find in their life, that they had each other, that they had a roof over their head, albeit that it was a tent on Skid Row, that they could see what they had to be grateful for versus someone who didn't have a tent and who was out on the street. And I think concepts that a lot of us face in our day-to-day lives, like the glorification of busy and like that, you know, relentless forward movement for success that doesn't necessarily make anyone happy. How has that all changed for you over your journey? And how have you funded yourself having left your job as well, like to keep going on this mission and and now what does impact and success mean i'm a victim to all of those things as well like that to-do list in my mind i put up post on my instagram a couple of days ago and it was such a release which was like getting real with my own mental health sometimes and realizing that to be really honest the last couple of months like i've had that sort of fictitious to-do list where like i sometimes in my head each day like my success has been making sure i do everything that i've said i'm going to do in my head by the end of the day and if i don't then like it's not been such a good day and days blend into, into weeks and weeks blend into months. And I, I sort of came down the line a couple months into like this. I love how you said, yes, yeah, like glorifying like this word busy and like, I'm busy, I'm productive. I'm doing all the things I need to do. And I came out at the end of this, this full on busy couple of months doing that feeling awful. 
like feeling really terrible, like not available for people, not available for myself. So I still today, like doing the work that I do, I have to check in with that. So I think it's rather than feeling pessimistic about a concept that it's going to keep coming back at you, it's like, I think it's actually positive because we are all beings that are like, society's version of what success and busy is sometimes really matters because you need to pay the rent and you need <laughs> yeah. to have the things around you that make you feel comfortable and you might have a family as well like i want kids one day and i want to be able to like make sure they can do the things that that they want to do as well so like these material things matter conceptually to like to have the things that we have to whatever your version of success looks like and that'll be different for everyone like my version of that is going to be way different than than another person's but buying into that wholly is a really dangerous game because like somewhere inside you there's somebody who longs for the things that like we haven't evolved past which is like feeling purpose in this like life feeling like you're involved in things that like are authentic to, to you and who you are and like again that's just everyone's version of that is so different but for me, I just know that when I leave those things by the wayside, like I'm always a couple of months away from getting my head in a tangle and having to like really take some time out. And I feel that we can help each other through that. And like it's culturally, it does take a bit of a shift. I'm not saying that I'm against like everyone crushing it to do everything they need to, to like become successful. But I'm trying to have this conversation as lots of people are online just to recognize like these human moments, these interactions, like being vulnerable, sharing in this way. It's super important. It's super important because the price is really high. And then on that point, I suppose, of course, the people that I'd meet on a day to day basis, men and women who are experiencing homelessness, like it's one way that I see that we can help people or that it's just radically just could be so much different than it is right now. Because what help looks like for somebody at the moment, I understand is like getting them inside, getting them shelter, getting people fed, getting those basic needs met. But it is incredible to me sometimes thinking about like this side of the conversation, this reconnection to like who you are. When I see that actually those things link up, someone give them a couple of years and, and, and they'll be in a way better place, you know? So it's really important that politically we have these kind of conversations too like it's becoming so much more popular this conversation of our collective mental health and how it's all inter intertwined but like i know that when you reconnect someone to who they are like there's so much better chance for them to successfully like get back on their feet quote unquote then you might just give someone like a house and some food in the fridge and they're still stuck inside like with all the same problems as they had before so I just think like this, this part of the conversation is something like we're getting to now. And I have a lot of optimism to, to sort of with the work that I do continue it and try and like sort of create that change um, with the things we're talking about from above as well as sort of from, from ground level. I think something that I really liked reading the book was that you do keep in contact with a lot of the people who you meet. You don't just meet them once, take a photo and kind of, you know, lose touch. You actually follow them through often to a really wonderful progression in their journey since the last time you saw them are there any sort of moments that just pull your heartstrings every time that you think about that are, you know the people who have stuck out or the moments that have stuck out in the last kind of five years well in the front of the book I dedicated to someone I used to know in Paris and his name's Cedric and getting the book back I think I thought of him straight away because he's somebody I used to go back and see back and forth on the streets and he was always surprised when I turned back up to see him again because his mind was blown that I'd get a train to Paris across from London. And I had friends there as well, but I'd come and see him. And it was like, 
it was beautiful because whenever we spent time together, it reminded me of how important it is to be aware that you could make a new best friend at any point in your life. And that's someone he, he, he taught me a lot because even though I'd started this journey and even though I'd been going out and meeting people, I think I was probably still looking at those early interactions as like helper and someone who needs to be helped. He was the first person I really met who just like, we became buds, like real good friends. And we met on like lots of levels. And yeah, and he's someone, unfortunately, who, who who's, is not with us anymore. And he passed away. And I, I dedicated the book to him because it was, it was, you know, I mean, whatever your belief system and whatever you want to, I, I just know, I sort of can hear his chuckle and his kind of like, mm-hmm. I, I can imagine the conversation we'd have if I brought him this book and showed him that he's in it. And I know he'd be really happy. So, you know, that's the kind of interaction that like, he always reminds me that, with every new person I meet, it, it could be someone who's your best friend and, and who you're really going to get on with. It's not about helping, quote unquote, just helping people. It's about like connecting. It's always been about connection for me since him. I cried when I read that he passed away. I was so devastated. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, it was really tough. There's some people I see, and, and, it, and it's important to include that in there because it's estimated that about 950. 60 people died on the streets last year in the UK in 2020 and actually I think three to five percent of that only accounting was coronavirus related. The elephant in the room that I'd like to address here which I think is substance misuse and drugs and alcohol that surrounds homelessness like it is I know from the outside like really difficult to understand and some of these behaviors I know it like being really honest I know it can look pretty ugly from the outside and, and and I I would like to say that like whatever your stance on all of this stuff, like the people that I see to address that quickly, like it's not recreational drug use. People aren't having a good time. People aren't, aren't using to go out and party. It's, it's, it's always like masking or to cope with something, either the surroundings of being there a lot of the time until you're out on the street and you're trying to get to sleep under some cold railway bridge or, at whatever time in the morning and someone passes you something I mean I'd like to also think you know what would you do in that situation but the point I want to make is whatever people stance on say homelessness as a whole I think we can all agree that it shouldn't be normal to see this many people on the street and to a point earlier like you know to live in a city where people are dying on the street each year people who are so far removed from this issue and maybe live with such affluence surely even in that situation, if you bring some friends to a city to show them around Sydney or London or wherever you live, you'd probably prefer like, for there to not be visibly people directly suffering in front of you. So I just think any way you approach this, I think we can all agree that we don't feel like it's, it's okay to, or it shouldn't be normal to see this stuff and to leave so many people sometimes not making it through the winter. So I just, I like to talk about this stuff and, and usually put a positive light, which is, I know it's difficult. And with someone like Cedric for me in the book, it's really hard to like to process someone like that who, who could be with us now. But it spurs me on to, to, to keep doing what I'm doing and realize that like there's, there's so much more we can do, but it will take more, I think, more action on a street level. And I think through kindness and through positivity and through telling stories in this human way, I never point the finger in the work I'm doing. This isn't about saying we should feel guilty and do more. It's about finding the things you really love to do and trying to maybe provide that for people, you know, in, in your surroundings, in your community where you live. And honestly, for me, this isn't random acts of kindness. Like, I don't believe it's random to, to be kind to someone. I believe it's like part of who we are. And I think that's also an awesome concept to go out and be the whatever 
kindness looks like to you but for me do something for nothing is like these are four words that re represent this to me but this is just what we all do on a day-to-day -day basis it's just providing it a little bit more for people who need it oh that's so beautiful i love that idea that it's not random it should just be kindness in all directions what yeah, you... i mean come on yeah like <laughs> I, I like I, I i need that too as well like honestly like when i'm having a bad day i'm sure you can relate to this right you must have had that moment before where you're just like in your own head in your own bubble you're in the tunnel vision like i'm annoyed about something and i'm like sort of scraping through this day and someone does something for you and it's not maybe as obvious as someone like buying a coffee in the queue in front of you and it being like kind of this it's more just holding the door open smiling at you someone on the bus like just like giving you their eyes and like smiling and like nodding their head something like that it just wakes you up from your own kind of like bullshit sometimes and i think like <laughs> it's just it's just like it's it's healthy like we need that all of us one of my best circuit breakers when i'm just having a shit time and usually for no reason i'm just in my own head about something is i try and give someone a compliment like find something that i like about what their lipstick is or whatever and you cannot stay in a bad mood when you give someone an unsolicited compliment and watch the change in their demeanor, it's actually the best possible thing you could do. It's almost selfish. Like I do it for myself to get out of a bad mood. It takes so little to make someone's day. And I think, you know, even if you can't necessarily sit down and give them a haircut, you can make someone's day with a smile or a conversation. What are your big visions for what's next for this movement? But more importantly, for people listening who want to get on board or to help support you in some way or, or bring the Do Something for Nothing movement, you know, to the Australian shores again, what are some of the ways we can support you? You know, it is a social movement in the sense that, like, this isn't a charity or a not-for-profit. Like, this isn't about coming to me to, like, then work at, you know, like, volunteer in your community. There's no, like, what I mean is there's no structure in some ways. I mm. mean, based on this podcast and talking about my life, maybe that makes a lot of sense. But it's, it's an open space for it's an open space for people to like be able to use this however you want the hashtag exists to highlight people in your community who are doing something cool and talking about it to inspire others it might be yourself it might be the skills that you have like tangible skills of course like i know for me wow a haircut isn't that a great way isn't it lucky like you've got this really tangible skill but no it's, it's it, everything's a vehicle for this connection this conversation that i've spoken about i mean yeah okay we've had yoga teachers volunteering rehabilitation centers young people students going to have lunch with senior citizens who don't have any family to come in and have lunch with them or that kind of thing but the thing is it's, it's very important to like you know all these things whatever it is like i could talk about an organization in sydney pass it on clothing my friend chris vag who set up this uh this amazing basically it's transpired from him and his girlfriend looking at their wardrobe of clothes that they they didn't wear anymore and we want to know what it's like to go and drop off clothes to like an op shop and like be able to like put it outside but that's great but it's not all that personal so he decided to set up these rails around sydney where it started as one thursday night and four years later they've become this organization where they have haircuts now they provide food they always set up in some mines place in the middle of sydney and people know that they're week in week out they've got so many people involved because now they know after having that conversation and, and not only giving people clothes but showing them the, the mirror and making sure they're really fixed up and looking good with like decent clothes that they get, they get these donations from really really nice places and it's like the conversations they have now they know how to help people more they've got mm. to know people they're more invested in their community than they were before and rather than being on the outside looking in it's just about finding ways where you go like you can become active in your community you can become someone who is aware of people and, and honestly the change the personal change that comes with that as you said 
kind of is selfish in a way and it's cool <laughs> to recognize that and it's it's got bad connotation but it's not it's like you could say to most people like fast forward a few years time and you could know like more people in this these busy cities we live in like more people around you and what they need and they know what you need it's just taking it back a bit to like how we used to live before we used to live in small communities where we did all have a wrong we did all know about each other's problems so you know we fast forwarded to like these places where we've got so much kind of like access to everything and, and more than anything we're so distracted and i think we need to just reel it in and realize that we can all become more part of each other's lives and i think finding your version of that can look like many things um, i often say to people write down three things you really love and, and that you enjoy and then next to that write down parallel like three areas that you'd like to change in this world maybe directly in your community and try and join the dots and keep looking at them until you do oh that's so beautiful i kind of describe finding your yay as that as well like writing down the things that give you that feeling that you had when you were a little kid where you just couldn't help but say the word yay because it makes you so excited and we are really distracted and i think we do also think that looking after ourselves particularly when you're in a job like yours which is very giving and altruistic that then material things like, you know, massage or a bath or rest seem very vacuous and I can imagine you would feel guilty watching Netflix rather than going out and transforming someone's life because you do have the opportunity to do the latter so why would you kind of waste time doing the former? But that's why this last section is important and maybe my favourite. It's called Play TA and it's the things that we all do that – aren't related to our job and are completely separate from our vocation but that make you forget what time it is, that are purely for your joy because I don't think you could fill up anyone else's cup if you aren't, you know, filling up your own in some way. So you mentioned music is one of them. Are there any other things that you do just to to find joy in, in between? Yeah, honestly, and I, I love the concept and the reason why, you know, obviously the name of your podcast, it's like it's so important to remember that curiosity and that feeling that that gave you that as a kid. And, like, I think without that, just on that point, like, I've had to learn, especially more so the last couple of years, I've got so much better at that. I can't go out and be available to people unless I have that moment you're talking about, which is forgetting the concept of time and being so kind of like, yeah, just filling up your cup in that way. And for me, it is music and it is like guitar, definitely. Uh, also football as well, like oh. is a really important one for me. Like I've, I've gone through stages of, it's because it's the best escapism. I have a really good relationship with I support a couple of teams here and it's like watching football, like getting together with people and doing that. Cause I used to play football when I was younger. It reminds me of what you're talking about, which is that summer's hot because it was actually, sometimes it is hot in the UK in the summer. I remember like, <laughs> yeah, maybe it's nostalgia, but like hot summers, I like going out all day and playing football with my mates and coming back with like grass stains in my trousers. And like, you just let yourself go. And, and for me, obviously it's different watching it, but it's like, there's something about that's pure escapism, which is beautiful too. But honestly, music always is the main one. Music and 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 that is something that, you know, whether I'm plugged in with an electric guitar with friends, it's or whether I'm just at home with like an acoustic, it's like it's the one thing where 
I've got calm app and I meditate and I do what I can each day to like be able to like center myself when I can. A lot of the times I forget, I don't want to pretend I'm like here, like I've got it down, <laughs> you know what I mean? But yeah, but it's like, I'm trying to do those things as best I can each day, that morning ritual, but whatever it is in your week, for me, it's like, yeah, music is like something where, whether I'm listening to music or whether I'm playing it, it's like, I forget it all. I just like, I, I'm in that space. And honestly though, what, it hasn't always been easy. I've burnt out. Like I had, your body will tell you things if you don't stop and do those those things for yourself. Like I've had moments where I've spent so long doing the doing bit of this and going out and thinking that I can't spend any time for me, like filling up that cup. And my body literally stopped me, like actually stopped me. And well, like health will stop you if, if you don't spend time like recognizing that. And I've just tried to get better recognizing the signals now. You've got to recognize the signals and realize that it seems counterproductive sometimes to stop and do whatever your absolutely nothing is or your escapism is, but it's actually the complete opposite. Absolutely. Stopping for gas and like the best kind of gas so you can like get back on the road and, and do your thing. Totally. I think even if your body didn't stop you, like we're not here, even if you love your job, you're not here to just work and die. Like that would be just such a gross waste of this beautiful life. And leisure and play has always been part of what life is all about. But also on the wellness front, if you don't make time for wellness, the quote that I love here is, if you don't make time for wellness, your body will force you to make time for illness. And that's one that I'm always like, oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> I know, right? I know. And, 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 you know, hopefully from that, like you're right, I immediately get the pang of like, yeah, it's, it's okay to almost be like, it is an urgent concept because don't let that like be, I know there's some things we can't control in our life, but like, do the best you can to like to work out your life before you get there like we do we do have more time than we I know we're up against it like I know like it's it's not always easy to like to feel like you have those moments but I think when you stop and from my own experience when I've ground to a halt and then I have to take a week you realize that everything works out like eventually like I I, I try and work a lot and I'm I really enjoy the work I do but Sometimes don't you feel now we're so in contact with every bleep of our phone that we weren't supposed to always be this available. Like we weren't supposed to always have had like not a moment to ourselves to like feel like we're not getting back to someone. So it's like these things are really new concepts. Honestly, it's when you get to nature and you put your phone down for a bit or whatever version it is of you, it's just like I just know that. I'm, I'm, I'm immediately hit with these troops where I'm just like, of course, no wonder you feel stressed. No wonder you feel tired. You know, you just, you just needed a day off. You needed a few days off. I literally just came back last week from a week in the Northern Territory with some Indigenous elders who they don't have a concept or a word for time in Aboriginal culture because you're just supposed to wake up at sunrise and go to bed at sunset and this concept of scheduling is something they really tried to make us surrender. And so we didn't have charges, so our phones died on the first day anyway. And we didn't need to know what time it was because the sun will kind of tell you if it's morning or afternoon and they told us where we needed to be by sunset. And I've actually had a really, really hard time coming back to this you know, kind of forced structure that we've imposed on ourselves. Of course you need some in the life, you know, to keep up with the life that we have. But you realise time is really a construct and so is deadlines and so is urgency, unless you're a heart surgeon or a paramedic, which neither of us are. So, you know, things can wait. Did you feel uh, on that first day, first of all, there was that anxious panic of phones ran out and what am I going to do? And then uh, how long did it take you to go, oh, 
Interestingly, it usually takes me a couple of days, but I think I was so overloaded and ready. By the time it was inevitable, like by the time we lost signal, I didn't even bother trying anymore. I just turned it off. I turned it on to airplane mode and I just didn't look at it for five days. And it was such a luxury, but it makes that you realize, so oh, it was amazing. But now I'm like, I don't want to be a human in real life society. It's cool though, because you know, you'll start doing things, you know, you'll get back to it, but keep it. And, and I'm so glad that you have a platform to be able to talk about and, and spread that message because like, Honestly, it's just as real and just as much as a reality as being in this scheduled world, you know? And I think that I know I feel the same as you, which is like, I, I've had a few days off recently where I was just phoneless. And I can think back to a time a couple of years ago when I was five days on a hike without a phone. And honestly, I literally turned into a kid again. I was the kind of re-noticing things because when you're left with like nothing to look at and nothing to pick up and stare at these screens, it's like, you just do that child does come out. It's still there. And what's really beautiful about that is like, we're all searching for that. We're all like constantly searching for like that, that freedom and that beauty. And it's in us, it's within us. It's just whatever you can do to re recognize it. In fact, you know, that, that is the one thing I would say it's everyone should allow at least a few phone off days of the year. Like, Maybe they're together in a few days straight, which is beautiful. But that's one thing I'm sure there's a hell of a lot of, of, of info about that, about how incredibly powerful that is for your well-being and, and bringing those truths back with you for the rest of the year. Mm, so liberating. Now I'm like, I, wanna, I just want to be a bushwoman, like out in the wilderness. <laughs> yeah, 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 mate. You've got a very, you've got a very good energy, a very good calming energy brought to this conversation. So I oh, think you've like, you, you brought some of it back. I appreciate you. <laughs> well, just to finish up, second last question three interesting things about you that don't normally come up in conversation because I imagine you do get asked a lot of similar kinds of questions about the fascinating work that you do but what are just some random things like favorite biscuit or you know <laughs> weird habits or party tricks okay oh yeah all right all right well um okay so I mean no I've said biscuit that's like very much in my head I'm like remove the one that says like the biscuit one because I don't have that but I think you're British you have uh, to have a favorite biscuit honestly maybe that's one of my facts I'm going to start off with like here's one random thing I don't like biscuits whoa (laughs) cup of tea and biscuits okay is not a British thing that always goes with tea and biscuits the cup of tea alone is amazing don't be you don't have to be dipping a biscuit in there and I don't like the way that when you dip a biscuit in you end up with the crumbs of the biscuit in the oh, tea yeah. no like so no sugar <laughs> in tea so why would I be why would it be I wouldn't be dipping a biscuit in so that's one interesting fact what what cup of tea though oh tea is what well, Yorkshire tea okay Yorkshire tea bag mm-hmm. so Yorkshire tea bag little bit of oat milk okay Not- oh oat Mm. Yeah, I don't do cow juice. Mm, no. Fancy. No, but, <laughs> I'm no, things, a little bit of oat milk, but no, that's that's kind of like. But I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to sit and say like I'm all over the cake, like vegan cakes. I'm, I'm. Someone told me becoming vegan was like this way of like I've pretty much been hungry since becoming vegan a, a couple of years ago, and um, I haven't honestly. I said to my joke with my girlfriend, I'm like I've been hungry ever since. But <laughs> it's. But it's an amazing and I'm happy. But one thing no one tells you is that you can still go really mental on junk food. Like you can still go hardcore. All the cakes are still available. Mm. All the snacks are still available. It's almost even worse. Anyway, I digress. But the one, one fun fact is talking to you in Australia. I once got to Australia for 10 pounds. 
shut up. Yeah. So I, I basically, I queued, it was the first time I came over when I was about 21. And I, uh, I heard someone over talking like in a conversation in the queue behind me about this sale that this travel agents had on where they were like, basically putting people on a plane to Australia for 10 quid, the first 30 people who like went to this travel agency in Bristol. So I went to camp from that moment I left. I went and camped outside of this place and I uh, I was one of the first like 12 people in the queue. So I managed to get this like 10 pound ticket to Australia. So that was pretty cool. Oh my gosh. Yeah, it was amazing. And it's when I came out, first of all, I was there for like a year or whatever and I worked around. So maybe that's another good fun fact. So I used to live in Australia in this town, which I still have beautiful memories of, which is uh, people always go, oh, you live there. And it's in, in Lismore in New South Wales. Which oh, is, yeah. Been, yeah, 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 everyone does that reaction. Everyone goes, ah, I'm like, it's the loveliest, most beautiful, awesome town. And near Byron Bay and all like the hip stuff, fine, that's great. But like that area of Northern Rivers is like so unbelievably beautiful. The little towns and the little markets of the weekend, I have like such fond memories of, of living in Australia. I don't know, another fun fact, maybe. No, they were great. That was three amazing. Is that ones. right? Yeah. Were they, were they three? Yeah, that was great. I can't believe you lived in Lismore for a year. I lived there, yeah, for basically a whole year. Cause That's also, so random. It took me there because, like, work, I knew my girlfriend at the time, her sister lived nearby and lived in the hinterland between, like, Byron Bay and Lismore. Mm. And it was just, like, it was the place where I ended up working. I worked in a little cafe there, and I was just, like, honestly, I was, it, it was such a beautiful time. I was very at one with, like, working and doing kind of like what I was doing there but when I say to people they're always just like find it funny because it's just like quite a small town it's very sleepy but like had this cafe and this record shop and this beautiful like art center and yeah I'd like to go back there one day. it's kind of like being like oh I came and went to Loughborough or something like it's <laughs> yeah, <exactly>. so random <laughs> I know I know but don't get me wrong I did since since then I've gone back and I've, I've done Sydney and Melbourne I've done like being in most cities and lots of amazing, beautiful, like obviously Australia is such an incredible place. So I've done a lot of it now, but like I actually still think like, yeah, that's my place. Maybe if I move back, that's where I'll, that's where I'll come. <laughs> and very last question, what's your favourite quote? Okay, my favourite quote is Joe Stromer from The Clash and it's that punk rock means amazing manners to your fellow human beings. And the reason why that quote is so important is that for me as a punk, so growing up and that being my ethos, it was the spiky hair and the Mohicans and the studs and everything that's the image of punk and the zips. Everything you see from the outside, once you, the door opens and you're let in, it just means being together and being cool to the people around you. And there's so many movements in history that have created that, but like without that side of it, without people putting their arm around me, like I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing today. I love that. I think you are such a wonderful advocate for never judging anything from just what it looks like on the outside and making the effort to sort of peel back the layers and see what's underneath. Thank you, Sarah. I really appreciate you. It's been so nice to chat to you today, honestly. And like I said, like we'll have to do this again in the future, maybe in person. Yeah, thank you so much. You've just been absolutely wonderful. And everyone should absolutely get a copy of Do Something for Nothing. It is out very soon and I'll um, pop a link in the show notes so you can all grab a copy. Thanks so much. Goodness me, this one inspired me and reminded me that despite the challenges and suffering that exist in the world, there is so much love and kindness out there too. Please help the Do Something For Nothing movement spread as far and wide as possible by sharing this episode and tagging at Joshua Coombs, along with any takeaways or thoughts that you've had. Hugh mentioned last week that he was blown away by all of your messages and reflections. There were hundreds of them. So please keep it up. It means so much to our guests 
and to me. I'll pop the link to Joshua's new book in the show notes and highly recommend that you grab a copy for an uplifting read. Hope you're having an amazing week. To my dear Victorians, hope you are surviving the week and are seizing your yay.